Uh, shout out to the bass player, always the coolest guy in the band. Can we all agree with that? Eli Phillips. Oh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> I missed him in my prayers, so I'm getting him from the front row. Uh, let's see. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Josh. Glad we got a, uh, a good house tonight. Um, if you miss a week, no problem. We have the CS family, all one word, and the Hangover podcast. We are taking over the world. As you can see, we have added Ireland since I last showed you the stats. Woo! Uh, that's right. That's right. Shout out to uh, Abigail Moore in Tanzania coming next week. Cross your fingers for that. Um, speaking of last week, we, be, uh, we beat up on the apostles for the first time. Yay! We beat up on the apostles. No, actually, it was like, ouch. For the first time, there was ramifications for uh, being a Jesus follower. And here was the teaching idea from Fall Retreat. Uh, the teaching idea was this. Persecution happens, and it's going to refine the church, but not destroy it. One more time. Persecution is going to refine the church, not destroy it. And so the next attack is not going to be the big P. It's going to be divisiveness and distraction. That's what I'm going to take you into tonight for um, Galatians, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 6. So, or check it out, yeah. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So that's where we start tonight. And like I said, it's not persecution to start us. We're going to end with persecution. But this is all about distraction and division in the early church. We've just come off of two major stories in the book of Acts where the believers share everything they have with anyone who has need. And so here's the idea. Lots of Jewish families who live and work in other countries, when the patriarch of the home gets near the end of his life, they would come back to uh, Jerusalem because they heard winter was coming. Now, that's the wrong meme. Hang on. This is what I meant because... Here's the idea. The idea is that the, the patriarchal father would want to be buried in the promised land. And so there are lots of widows in the city of Jerusalem area. <clears throat> and so as the disciples were increasing, so were the Jews. They were there among, amongst, the, uh, amongst the temple. So here we go. What we have tonight is, is a distribution problem, and that problem is going to be racially motivated. You could see that there were two different types of Jews showing up. There was the Hellenistic and the Hebraic. And, and this meant the purebloods versus the adopted culture. And there began to be complaining among the people. Now, we've heard complaining before throughout the story of the Old Testament. Immediately, my mind goes back to the, the very beginning of the Israelite people whenever they were led out of slavery they went through the wilderness with this guy named Moses, and they began to complain for a lack of food. Here in Acts, we have the distribution of food. The same complaining word was used in the New Testament as well. It's Luke chapter 5. There's this tax collector who invites Jesus and his disciples to a great banquet. And here's what happens in Luke 5. A large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law complained to the disciples. 
See, what had happened before as Jesus was, was leading and walking was there was some, some socioeconomic problems. And now what we have in the early church is racial division. And so something has to be done about it. So the 12 gather all the disciples together and they say, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We're going to turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to the prayer and ministry of the word. Tonight, I'm going to introduce you to two of my favorite winter is close theologians. Winter has not come yet for these two men. The first one is an Irish, Irish mathematician named John Lennox, and I think he is our rogue podcast listener. Can you make sure we have sound on a video here? Thanks. About the administration of material needs of widows, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Notice the kind of administrators they picked, men full of the Holy Spirit, etc., 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 amongst whom was Philip. What's this all about? It's all about not letting your ministry be distracted. These things are important. But if God has called you to teach and preach the word, don't let yourself be distracted. So the idea here in the first of my... Uh winter is close, theologians, is that there is no loss of dignity in the change of the disciples to pick people who could use their skills to pass out. This is not a problem of calling, but this is a question of priority. And guys, I have to remind you of why this is so important, because the 12 apostles were the ones who uniquely walked and lived with Jesus. There's only one person who didn't walk day to day because that was Brother Jude, and then he's not with us, and so we replaced him. But there's 11 of the 12 people who said, we have one call, one priority on our life, and it is the ministry of the word, and they haven't been killed yet. Yay. That's coming tonight, though. And in fact, the entire rest of the sermon from this point on is moving from finger-wagging and flogging warning, stop talking about resurrection, to martyrdom. And here is the pathway. The proposal pleases the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Pumbaa, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to... Well, you're not reading your Bibles. You don't know if I get that right or not, right? A convert to Judaism. Here's verse 6. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed... And laid their hands on them, and so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. This is up there, right? Excellent. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Like, this is power happening right here. Whenever the leaders and the teachers uh, of the Jewish tradition are starting to see for the first time for themselves the way that the life of Jesus absolutely changes their voice in the synagogue. And here's my idea, guys. You have to get this one right because it's not beneath the apostles to go serve. It wasn't their calling to serve in that way. 
Because what happened whenever you turn the priest in the synagogue to one who teaches the story of Jesus and its fulfillment of the Old Testament, all of a sudden now, this exponential multiplication of the church. And that's what we see happen here. Now, Stephen is a man full of God's grace and power. He performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of freedmen who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Stephen is our main character for tonight. But what I need you to see is that Stephen is being singled out, and he is only the first of all of the apostles, and now these men who are going to be persecuted for the way that they talk and the way they are growing within the church. And so here's the aha. As you guys read that for yourself, you can see that the, the, the leaders have been thwarted in open debate. Uh, they cannot stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gives Stephen as he speaks. Uh, I have a friend named John for whom winter has come, and he says, when arguments fail, mud is often an excellent substitute. You'll get what this means right here in verse 11. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stir up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They see Stephen, and they bring him before the Sanhedrin. Verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and change the customs that Moses has handed down. Could you guys see the pathway, please, uh, from flogging towards martyrdom? It began with Stephen's wonders and signs. Stephen overtly helped people who were in the local population. Wonders and signs were done. And that began theological debates. They were verbal proofs that the Spirit gave rational and reasonable arguments that people who were, were standing up against Stephen couldn't verbally combat. And that then became slander, personal attacks, producing false witnesses. And that is going to resort to our next chunk, a quasi-legal action in an attempt to rid Stephen by force from their midst. Verse 15 says this. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. They saw that his face was like that of an angel. Now, when you hear that, you probably jump back to the Old Testament. You think about your favorite cherub-faced slash bag boy Moses, like I did. And immediately, I was like, you know that story, Exodus, where Moses had to wear the bag on his head because he was too bright? Well, here is what happens. Chapter 7 turns over, and the high priest looks at Stephen with his bright face and says, Is this true? Stephen has to defend himself to the question, Is this true? Here comes my second winter is close theologian. He's a man kind of like Cher, kind of like Madonna, where he's only known by a first name. As well, this is one of those that the internet sort of forced to happen over the last, right? over the last two years. You, you've been on the list of when, when people just start assaulting me on Twitter, and I mean it, assault in the best sense. Sit down with Robbie, sit down with Robbie. So we finally were able to work it out. I'm amazing to hear that. So both of my friends went to work, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. All right. So first, when, when I Google your name, it says that you're a Christian apologist. Now, we all hear this phrase, and it sounds 
a little strange to me. Christian okay. apologists as if to do what you do, you have to either apologize for something or feel guilty about it or something like that. Can you tell me about the phrase Christian yeah, apologist? It's one of those words that have evolved over the last few years and contoured with different meanings now, David. But it has a rich history when it goes back to the likes of Justin Martyr and Augustine and so on. Apologetics was part of the curriculum and the discipline of theological philosophical training. It comes from the Greek word, actually, to give an answer. The Apostle Peter says, for example, set apart Christ in your hearts as Lord and always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you and to do it with gentleness and respect. So this is an ordinary fisherman talking about how to answer people with gentleness and respect. So the word really means to give an answer. I think it has two, two senses making your truth claims clear and giving the answer to the legitimate questioner. Is this true? Is this true? It's a legitimate question because in verse 13, you see there's two different uh, provoked questions. This man is preaching against the temple and he's preaching against the law. And so what, what Stephen does is he gives a reasoned defense and so what we're going to do is just do an overview of this. We've kind of, kind of got 40 verses that are getting ready to fly your way. And so we're not going to read them uh, verse by verse. But here's what I need you to know. Um, what Stephen's going to do is tell the story of the Old Testament, but not in a way uh, that is rehashing something that these men who believe the story of the Old Testament already know. He is going to tell the story of the Old Testament in order to teach a new lesson. One that is not disrespectful, that is not blasphemous, but it answers respectfully and it honors God. And here's the thing about Stephen's sermon that he's getting ready to do. He will give this sermon in spite of the consequences that the sermon is going to give him. He'll pick four major moments in Israel's history dominated by four characters. So here they are. First, he's going to talk about Abraham and the fathers of faith. He's going to slip over to Joseph and talk about the Egyptian exile. He's going to go from there to Moses and the wilderness wandering. Remember that whole complaining thing. And lastly, he's going to go to David and Solomon and the building of a temple. Um, what I'm going to show you, though, is, is kind of my favorite verse from each of those uh, different storylines. Because what I, what I want to do is make sure that you guys catch the narrative that Stephen is teaching. And so he starts here with the story of Abraham. This is God talking to Abraham, and he says in 7.3, Leave your country, leave your people, and go to the land that I will show you. The very next one is, uh, is Joseph. The patriarchs, that means the fathers, were jealous of Joseph, and so they sell him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. There's one more here, and this is going to come from Moses. The Lord says to Moses, take off your sandals. This is verse 33 and 34. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to set them free. And now, come, I will send you, Mo, back to Israel. Here's what you guys have to see in the story of Peter, that the God of the Old Testament is always on the move. The accusation that was, that was falsely 
levied at Stephen was that he is speaking against the temple, this one static place. And what Stephen is, did I say Peter? I meant Stephen. What Stephen is going to do is he is going to walk through the Old Testament saying that God of the Old Testament is always alive and on the move. He is always calling his people into new adventure and he is always accompanying them and directing them as they go. Spoiler alert, this is the same God of the New Testament and it is the same God that you are invited to know and to follow, and to love, and to worship. Stephen is going to then close his sermon in 49 and 50, those first three parts, by repeating Isaiah's rhetorical question whenever he talks. Uh, and he says this, this is God's voice. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house can you build for me? <laughs> I love that. That's why it's rhetorical. God himself is the creator. How can the maker of anything, of everything, be confined within a man-made structure? This is incredible. And so that's the answer to the false witnesses' first premise, that he is speaking against the temple. And what uh, Stephen is saying throughout his story is, no, 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 my God is dynamic, and you know him too. Again and again and again, if you read this sermon for yourself, he's going to attach the men who are accusing him underneath the same God as he, Stephen, attaches himself. He is our Father. He is our Lord of glory. And then he's going to tag on to this second one. You are also speaking against the law. Now, in response to this accusation, Stephen is going to turn the tables and he's going to say this, that I am not disregarding the law, but you are as an accuser, like your fathers have done before you. Uh, and so here's your verses here. This is starting, I think, in uh, 37. Moses tells the Israelites, God is going to raise a prophet like me from your own people. And Moses will receive living words to pass on. But our ancestors... And this is where Stephen's saying, it's your ancestors and it's mine. Our ancestors refused to obey, and instead they reject him in their hearts, and they turn back. Uh, this is, this is a, 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 the point where Stephen's sermon all of a sudden makes this shift right here in 37, 38, 39. And it's about to go badly for the accusers. Uh, and it closes right here. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Uh, this is a double-barrel, um, like, precision, circumcision nail right here, because usually circumcision is singular, but Stephen twists it. And when he says uncircumcised hearts, he's talking about idolatry. You remember this verse right here, right? Instead, they rejected him in their hearts. That's number one. And then number two is you're rejecting him with uncircumcised Ears. This means you're unwilling to listen to truth. He says, you are a stiff-necked people, just like your fathers resisting the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Here's my clothes, and then I'll pass the baton. Stiff-necked is even worse than lint liquor. I don't know if you remember the Orbit commercial, but stiff-necked means stubborn. 
Moses, Isaiah, these men applied the word stiff-necked to the people of Israel. And he says, and Stephen points at the men who are accusing him and saying, you are just like your fathers. Now, the, the major twist of the entire sermon has not yet come because it's actually Stephen, the one who is teaching right now, who will make the twist come alive for us. And so you don't have to take my word for it, but give a CSF welcome to Megan Hancock. Got me off. excited to share with you all what God has been um, just teaching me, so I'm just going to jump right in and pick up where Josh left off. Um, So we start in verse 51. We start this passage with Stephen blatantly calling out the Jewish leaders in their sins of being heathen at heart and deaf to the truth, resisting the Holy Spirit, and betraying and murdering the Messiah. And then in really a poignant shot to the hearts of these men who believe only in Moses' law and base their life and salvation on personal obedience to it, he accuses them of deliberately disobeying that law in verse 53. And then the passage ends in verse 60 with the juxtaposition of Stephen shouting and pleading even, Lord, don't charge them with this sin before he takes his last breath as the leaders stone him. So I, when, I, when Josh asked me to speak on this portion of scripture and I first read verses 51 through 53, I really struggled to reconcile the accusatory Stephen I saw in verses 51 through 53 with the forgiving Stephen in verse 60. But after several more times of reading it and um, really just asking God to help me better see his heart in the passage, I began to perceive Stephen at the beginning of the passage, just as at the end, as a man deeply, deeply aware of his own brokenness and inability to satisfy the just standard of the law on his own, Um, a man humbled by his needs for God grace, and ultimately a man filled with the Holy Spirit, as we see repeated throughout Acts 6 and 7. I mean, guys, like Stephen understands at the heart level the truth in Ephesians 2.13. This is a verse I've really just been kind of repetitively reading a lot lately, and that's the truth that all of us, both those who have sought to obey God's laws as a means of salvation and those of us who have entirely disregarded God's laws um, and disregarded his commands, all of us were once far away from God. But we have now been brought near to him through and only through the blood of Christ. So only from the place of knowing his justification by faith in Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, can Stephen stand in this place and accuse the Jewish leaders? And more than that, I would argue that embedded in his accusation is really just this simultaneous plead for the Jewish leaders to see what he sees. And what he sees, what we as Christians, knowing the truth of our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, is the futility of seeking to gain salvation by obeying the law. And this truth of God's saving grace for us, I think Stephen really wanted the Jewish leaders to see the truth of God's saving grace for them as well. From my interpretation, we can see this perhaps most clearly in verses 55 through 56. 
says, um, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. So I see these verses as Stephen's way of saying, essentially, don't you get it? Like, don't you see it? Jesus is the fulfillment of his own prophecy, as we know in Luke 22, that the Son of Man would be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. He is the Messiah we've been waiting for and the only perfect source of our salvation. And they don't get it. And sometimes I don't get it. <laughs> um, they shake their fists at him in rage and refuse to listen. They cover their ears and shout and finally drag him out of the city to stone him. Now, my response when a trusted Christian friend calls me out in my own sin is, of course, not to stone them. But if, <laughs> but if I am accused of sin or the Holy Spirit reveals my sin to me, I am quick a lot of the time in my pride to become defensive or simply not listen. Even though I know the truth of my personal, sometimes overwhelming brokenness and the simultaneous truth of God's grace, the sin I probably struggle with most is the very sin of the Jewish leaders. And that's the sin of finding my justification and worth and how well I am obeying God's law, um, how, quote, good of a Christian I am, um, how well I'm serving others, and really having all this head knowledge of the Bible without really allowing it to penetrate deep to my heart and humble me. And guys, I have to ask God daily to crush my pride in this area and remind me of the truth of my salvation, my salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, Okay, so I've just mentioned how I can kind of relate to the Jewish leaders. But so now let's take a look at Stephen in the passage. So perhaps the starkest contrast we see between Stephen and the Jewish leaders is where Stephen's focus is. Again, the starkest contrast is focus. So the leaders are focused on themselves, defending themselves, being justified in their religion. On the other hand, Stephen's focus is on the rightful and holy position of Jesus at God's right hand. So from that place, as he confronts the leaders, knowing very well that they will do anything to silence him and they have the power to even kill him, as we know they eventually do, he keeps his eyes, even knowing that, firmly fixed on the authority of Jesus rather than on any personal means of defending or justifying himself or even saving his own life. So from this place of knowing his justification by Christ and the foremost importance of glorifying God rather than himself, also from a heart aware of its own spiritual bankruptcy and need for a holy and righteous savior, Stephen is then quick to love and forgive the men stoning him, and even as they're stoning him, beg the Lord not to charge them with this sin. And in this, his heart mirrors the heart of our savior, um, which we see shown in Jesus's prayer in Luke 23 on behalf of the men crucifying him. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. So I look at the heart of Stephen and his words as he's being stoned and the heart of Jesus um, as he is being crucified on the cross for us. And I think, wow, I want a heart like that. But I'm not quite there. <laughs> um, I will admit that in the course of preparing to speak, just even just tonight, I 
really, really wrestled with a myriad of emotions from at first shrinking away at even just the thought of speaking in front of you all when Josh asked me. <laughs> um, public speaking is not my thing. <laughs> and so I moved from that place of just not wanting to do it but then being excited about the work God was really doing in my heart as I sat down and read the passage and just kind of really got to listen to what he was saying to me personally. And then I was kind of wrestling also with this feeling of discouragement and just feeling hypocritical because of my own sin and unworthy of standing before you all tonight. But um, as I continue to look at the passage and more at the heart of Stephen, and ultimately more at the heart of God as he reveals it to us in, in this passage, I realized that the only reason I can stand before you all, despite my own, as I already said, sometimes overwhelming brokenness and my occasional return like the Jewish leaders to relying on my own good works for salvation or justification, despite that, um, I am able to stand before you all because and only because of the finished work of Christ on the cross and how he has redeemed me. So yes, I stand up here and fear my words tonight may not sound sophisticated enough. Um, I fear you may be able to realize that I don't usually stand in front of people and speak. <laughs> um, but I, my hope is that by the power of the Holy Spirit just speaking through me, um, and I hope going beyond the words that I'm saying, I, I just hope that you and I might become more aware, uh, more deeply aware of the areas where we fall short daily, but also the simultaneous fully full sufficiency of God's grace to cover every one of those areas where we fall short. And I hope that we would all desire a heart like Stephen's and ultimately a heart like our Savior's with increasing fixation more on Christ than on ourselves and a heavy, heavy longing for the people around us, even those who might hate us, to know the grace of Jesus. I'm going to finish this off with some prayer right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, God, thank you so much um, that we can come here every Thursday and just be in community, um, coming from a variety of places, whether we're just really hurting um, from the week or from the month, or we're having a great time, and it's just it's, life's great, and we're on the mountain. Whether we're in the mountain or the valley, God, you are faithful. Um, and you take us in our brokenness and call us um, into the life of holiness that you have for us. Um, call us out of that brokenness to just rest in your love and love others in return. So I pray that we would all um, come to look more and more like you and have a heart like Stephen's and have a heart like yours that um, knows the only reason we can, we can love others and we can stand and proclaim your name is because of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.